This talk was recorded by Insight Meditation South Bay in Mountain View, California. For more talks and information, visit www.imsb.org. This talk was recorded by Insight Meditation South Bay in Mountain View, California. For more talks and information, visit www.imsb.org. Well, it's nice to be here with you. Thank you for having me. I, um, I was very delighted to when Shaila invited me to participate in this series because this topic is dear to my heart. So the title of this talk tonight, as you, I'm sure you know, is Stand Strong and Love. And that came to mind as I was contemplating, well, what can I offer into this conversation about compassionate social action? And it was, you know, through reflection on my experience as I've um, kind of jumped into that in the process of being a nun, which is not what happens a lot of times when you're spending time in a monastery. But I was fortunate to be in, in training with some sisters who were very interested in what was happening in the world and not, not at all averse to someone in training paying attention to that and, and eventually getting involved in that. So that was really helpful to me. I started to really investigate uh, where our world was going and... I don't know if you've noticed, but we're living in very interesting times. And I think, I think, isn't there a, a Chinese curse that sort of says, <laughs> may you live in interesting times? And, and of, of course, you know, we're very creative, so we can turn that into a blessing, I think. And part of the... The interesting times, of course, involves things that are happening on a scale that human civilization has never seen before in many ways, right? The, uh, the population on the earth and what that's doing to our um, abilities to support everyone and, and what, we're, what we're experiencing with the climate and how we're living on fossil fuel energy and, you know, the whole array of activities and behaviors and structures that are unsustainable that we realize are, are going to come to an end or bring us to an end that we may not like very much if we keep going. So with that as the backdrop, I think about, okay, how... How do we as practitioners show up in this context? And what does this mean for our development in the Dhamma and our ability to use the Dhamma to make a difference in this amazing period of time? So as I was kind of taking in what's kind of feeling, was feeling very much like the bad news. Um, I was also practicing pretty deeply 
around the Four Noble Truths and really being present with feeling, being present with all those waves of wow, look at that, worry, concern, fear, anguish. Um, and I, I meet people who are definitely struggling with strong feelings about what's happening and sometimes being overwhelmed. And what's so beautiful, of course, about the Dhamma and the many tools that the Buddha gave us is that we don't have to hold it like that. We can really do creative things with it, things that deepen us and open us and make us effective in the world. So one of the people that has been an incredible inspiration to me is Venerable Bhikkhu Bodhi. And how many of you know who that is? Okay. Venerable Bhikkhu Bodhi is um, a monk. He's been a monk now since 1972, which is the year I graduated from high school. And he is probably the foremost translator of Pali language into English in the world. And he's got an incredible depth of knowledge of the Pali canon more than anybody else that I know. So he's a scholar. And he's an amazing teacher. And he's such an incredible practitioner. I've never really met, well, he's incredibly humble, incredibly kind, deeply compassionate. And he, you know, realized that he needed to encourage his students and everyone to get involved in what's happening in, in our world that the compassion can't just stay like here, you know, on the chair or on the cushion. It has to be put into action. So he tells the story from time to time about writing an article for a journal that he didn't tell anybody about that talked about, you know, really um, taking action. And he said he didn't mention it to anyone and he, I don't remember what title he gave it, but the the editors of the magazine called it the challenge to Buddhist practitioners or something like that. And then his students found out about it and said, okay, we need to do something about this. I get that we, we need to do something about this. And so some of them came to him, and that's how Buddhist Global Relief was born. And Buddhist Global Relief is an organization that's focused on world hunger and mal- chronic hunger and malnutrition and um, has projects in various places around the world to help people who are really struggling with, with food security. And, you know, places like Niger in Africa where they don't have vitamin A, so like 25% of the children are blind by the time they're five just because they don't have vitamin A. You know, so Buddhist Global Relief teamed up with the Helen Keller Foundation and providing nutrients and micronutrients to pregnant women and babies and children. And so that's the kind of thing they do. They provide um, food support in crises, but that's not the main focus. The main focus is food support in 
you know, conditions that are chronic and working with food security. So I got involved with Buddhist Global Relief a couple of years ago, uh, supporting their annual Walk to Feed the Hungry, which we've had a couple times. How many of you know about this? And, and you, did you come? <laughs> Please pay attention. I hope you know, find out that it, when it's happening this year. It's always in the autumn. And we walked from um, Burgett's, uh turf there, the Quaker house in San Jose, up to Palo Alto the first year, um, 18 miles. And, and there, were, there were about 40 people who did the whole thing. And then last year we said, I don't think that last six miles was really that necessary. <laughs> we stopped in Mountain View. But, um, but it's, a, it's a wonderful time. And the funds, you know, when you um, have sort of firsthand experience with an organization that's all volunteer, that's, that's doing amazing work and is partnered with people that you know and you're seeing how the work gets done on the ground, then it's really exciting to, to support it. And um, Buddhist Global Relief is like that. So I would really encourage you to, to um, get involved if you, if you wish and then you can. Um, Venerable Bhikkhu Bodhi, besides leading and guiding and inspiring Buddhist Global Relief, also has been showing up at rallies and demonstrations. Now, this is not the done thing in our tradition, I want you to know. I am probably, I am in the most conservative Buddhist tradition that I think exists on the planet. And and I'm a bhikkhuni, which means I've stepped over the line already, so <laughs> I might as well just go for it. Um, and he's, of course, a Theravadan monk, um, very classically trained, but recognizing that the time has come to be involved. And um, he invited me to come along to the rally in Washington, D.C. in 2011. And it was um, something that had been planned for a while. This protest on Freedom Plaza in D.C. Uh, but it but it was just before it happened, Occupy Wall Street emerged. And it quickly became kind of an Occupy adjunct. adjunct. And that was very interesting. It was very interesting to really take in the range of issues that people were concerned about, the ways of expressing that concern, the deep, sense of compassion that people have for various situations that people are in around the world and also expressing their own uh, deep unrest about their own experiences that they're having in the whole range, you know, whether it's health care, economic issues, the wars, the the horror of of nuclear... um, weaponry being used in the Middle East that's creating birth defects, the whole, the whole gamut, and of course climate change, and lots of other things. And then uh, we also were part of Occupy Wall Street, um, 
for a, for a, a couple of brief visits. And this um, February, President's Weekend, I was with uh, Venerable Bhikkhu Bodhi at Washington, D.C. in what is being called, is known as the uh, the biggest climate change rally in the history, or the cli- the biggest environmentalist rally in the history of our country. So I want to tell you a little bit about that. And then I've got a sutta here that we are going to get to, like, the Dhamma. What is the Buddha? What is, what is, where, how does this connect to the teachings that the Buddha gave? So this is something that uh, Venerable Bhikkhu Bodhi wrote, and you can see this online. Uh, he entitled it, Time to Draw a Line in the Tar Sands. How many of you are, know what the tar sands are? Okay. Um, I will tell you a little bit about that. This is, this is a, a way of extracting oil that is very, very costly and very, very... Um, detrimental to the environment, and it's a very big thing in Alberta, Canada, fueling their economy and has been for a while uh, creating a bit of a boom up there. But it has some very serious implications for our planet. So this is, uh, I'll just read part of what he wrote about that, and I'll give you an idea of kind of the, the field we're, we're talking about. He said that the impact of climate change on global food security is sure to be one of the most critical issues we'll be facing in the years ahead. And, of course, at Buddhist Global Relief, we're really concerned about this. We, we want people to have food. And since agricultural productivity depends on a stable and congenial climate, we cannot tamper with the climate without jeopardizing the world's food supply. Over the past decade, we've seen how a warming climate has triggered long droughts, violent hurricanes, torrential storms, and searing heat waves, reducing yields of essential food commodities. Policy expert Lester Brown writes ominously, extreme soil erosion, growing water shortages, and the Earth's rising temperature are making it more difficult to expand production. And, of course, our population's expanding. So... Unless we can reverse such trends, food prices will continue to rise and hunger will continue to spread, eventually bringing down our social system. Now, that may seem too strong, but if you start looking at the data, um, there is a, a very real threat to our, to our civilization. And the root of it is climate change. As an organization dedicated to the battle against hunger and malnutrition, Buddhist Global Relief is deeply concerned with how we're altering the climate. In our view, alleviating hunger calls not merely for acts of philanthropy, but also for a vigorous effort to counteract the forces responsible for hunger, among which global warming is now the most formidable. Tackling climate change requires, in the first place, a commitment to honesty and truth. We can't hide behind the mask of denial, and we can't afford the luxury of delay. We have to recognize that the primary cause of global warming is human behavior, our carbon-driven economy, our frenzied consumerist culture, and the hunger of fossil fuel corporations for ever greater profits. Actions have consequences. There's a dharma. And And so, too, does the failure to act. 
Practices born of narrow self-interest will inevitably rebound, harming ourselves as well as others. Since an altered climate affects us and our communities, tackling it is partly a matter of enlightened self-interest, but only partly, for it is also a matter of justice. The freakish weather patterns whipped up by an altered climate bear down hardest on poor populations in the global south, those least responsible for greenhouse gas emissions and least equipped to deal with the devastation. This fact gives the climate change an inescapably ethical dimension. It makes our impact on the climate a moral issue. And then in, in italics, the burning moral challenge of our time. Perhaps even the great, gravest moral challenge in human history. From this perspective, considerations based on expediency and pragmatic efficiency fade into the background. The primary demand placed on us is to act as the situation demands under the guidance of compassion, humane responsibility, and the commitment to social justice. It's thus to answer the call of conscience that two weeks ago I traveled to Washington to participate in the demonstration against the Keystone XL pipeline. Pipeline. So how many of you know what the Keystone XL pipeline is about? Okay. Don't worry if you don't. Many people don't. Many people that are friends of mine, I talk to them about these things and they haven't heard of it. And that's why we have to talk about it even right here. Because um, this is like, this is, this is the heart of what we can do as Buddhists who care about beings on the planet. This is the stuff that we need to share with each other so that we all understand what's happening. And then there's good news, too. So we'll get there. Um, X, KXL, as it's often called, has emerged as a symbolic rallying point in the battle to stop, stop climate change. Over the past two years, a vigorous campaign against it has been waged across the country, and the D.C. demonstration was to mark its culmination. Just a month earlier, I joined, well, he was, he was also involved in a, an interdenominational pray-in. The Keystone XL pipeline will allow delivery of 830,000 barrels of oil a day um, from Alberta to our Gulf Coast. This pipeline goes across, down through mid-America and across the, um, the aquifer that supports a third of our agriculture. The chances of contaminating that source of water and life is enormous. There are many, many, many people and environmental groups standing up against this. And it was amazing to see them coming together, pulling together, and, and assembling in D.C. 50,000 people, they say. That's more than anybody expected. And, of course, as this continues, we need hundreds of thousands, I would say, to make a difference. <coughs> Um, what's difficult about this situation is that there's so much money in it. And 350.org 
is an organization that's leading this effort. And what I am so impressed by is the way that they're doing it with dignity, with a kind of grace, I would say. Um, I noticed it when they had their first rally where people got arrested in D.C. 350.org organized this. They knew there was a chance, there was a likelihood, very strong likelihood that people would get arrested and one of my friends, a young woman named Sarah, went and she was arrested. And you see these images of people, you know, nicely dressed, no struggle, just being there to make that statement, to let our government know, to put themselves on the line with dignity. This whole rally. What, that I, I was there with all, you know, all these people, there wasn't that, that anger, that, that, you know, rah, 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 put down whatever, whomever kind of attitude. It's much more like a positive, or, or maybe Gandhi would have called it a, what did he use? Um, positive program, I think is the words he used. There was a sense, I mean, they used language around, we have to fight against the agenda of the fossil fuel industry. But it doesn't have that negativity that I always found kind of associated with fighting against something, some kind of demonstration. I remember one of my early spiritual teachers said that she got involved in the Vietnam War days with, you know, demonstrating for peace. And the demonstrations were so full of anger that she is pulled away. And it's easy to fall into that, but it's a lot easier for us who have a practice to not go there, to recognize that there's much more power in love than there is in any kind of anger or hatred. And what I'm, what I'm inspired by is that regardless of what, their practices who are, you know, kind of leading this effort. I see this happening. I mean, we, there, were, there were slogans. There were chants. Hey, Obama, we don't want no climate drama. Hey, Obama. <laughs> <laughs> and there were signs, you know, and most of them were things like reminding our president of the great things he said he would do. <laughs> you know, let's lift him up. Let's help move this forward in a positive way. Let's help the people who have a lot of investment in making all that money from the fossil fuels that they have at their disposal, that they have in their coffers, that are creating this wonderful bottom line for them to not sell that, to not burn it, because the scientists already know that we have five times the fossil fuel at our disposal right now, then we can safely burn without altering our planet dramatically five times. So 350.org realizes, okay, the movement has to be that we have to stand up as, a, as humanity and let people know that we want to change this. 
Okay, so this is what 350.org says on their website. We're building a global movement to solve the climate crisis. And the climate crisis, like Venerable Bikyu Bodhi said, is the big issue. Of all the things that are going wrong, and boy, I'm on all these email lists, like I see this, this stuff, like I've got like how many messages a day about all these different problems, and there are so many, and it breaks your heart. And yet I know that, you know, like <laughs> the president of our board um, for Karuna Buddhist Vihara is, is also a really, a really good businessman, really good Buddhist and a really good businessman. And he said, win. What's important now? <laughs> What's important now? And right now, on an activist front, from my perspective, oh, sorry, on an activist front, from my perspective, what's important now is solving this problem because it overshadows everything else, including all those hopes and dreams that our young people have in their lives. And so, 350.org says, we are building a global movement to solve the climate crisis. Why? Number one, the climate crisis is the biggest problem facing the world. Unchecked climate change means more natural disasters, more outbreaks of disease, more food shortages, and more sea level rise. Two, we need to make large-scale changes. The climate crisis is so big that we can't solve it with small personal actions alone. We need to think bigger and bolder. And I run into people who, you know, it's like, I'm doing my part, I'm recycling, I have a Prius, and, and it's great, and it's not enough. And I flew to D.C. to be in this climate rally. Like, how crazy is that? You know, why didn't I walk? Why didn't I take a bus? Because if we burn all that fossil fuel, it's not going to make any difference whether I flew to D.C. or not. But if, and I inspired three other people to show up there besides myself, if I wish I could have inspired 50, maybe next time, if we show up, then we can, we can solve this problem. We can change it. So that was the reasoning. Global scale change, this is number three. Global scale changes, change means changing policy. We need laws that rewire the way the world pr produces and consumes energy so that clean power is cheap, dirty power is expensive, and people everywhere can live sustainable lives. So I run into people a lot who say it's not possible. Um, clean energy is too expensive. Clean energy doesn't work. This is not true. Um, clean energy is more expensive because billions goes into billions of subsidies, go, billions of dollars of subsidies go into the fossil fuel industry every day. So when we turn that around, we, we, us, we turn that around, then that changes the whole game. And I haven't run into one person who would rather use a car, car based on fossil fuel or anything else based on fossil fuel than based on wind power or sun, solar power. We don't really care. We just want to be able to do what we do. And there's no reason why we can't. But what makes the difference is the way the structures are and the money and power that's behind certain efforts and not behind other efforts. And that's what we get to change. Then, 
for getting strong climate policy won't be easy because it means fighting the wealthiest and most powerful group on the planet, the fossil fuel industry. And that word fighting, again, like sometimes I say, I'm a Buddhist nun, I don't fight, I love. Love is stronger. And so even Bill McGibbon, head of 350.org, said, you know, yes, we've got to encourage the the, the folks involved in the fossil fuel industry are going to suffer just as much as the rest of us, actually, in the end. And we need to support everybody in making this shift. And those industries can change. And then we can win with a people-powered movement. So we'll never have as much money as the fossil fuel industry, so we need to overpower them with our numbers and our determination instead. From the civil rights movement to women's suffrage, social movements have changed the course of history. So we're building a movement of people to solve the biggest problem in the world. So at the rally, Bill McGibbon said, it's our job to make sure the planet does not catastrophically overheat. Today, at the biggest climate rally, by far, by far, by far in U.S. history, the most fateful battle in human history is finally joined, and we will fight it together. Now, maybe this is the right time to say, the Buddha supports this. How do I know? Well, there's this lovely sutta somewhere here. Ah. So we're going to shift gears. This this took place um, when the Buddha was staying in Rajagaha on Mount Vulture Peak. How many people have been there? Have you ever been to Mount Vulture Peak? If you ever go, if you ever go to Bodh Gaya. Take a day trip out to Vulture's Peak. It's amazing. It's amazing if you study the suttas. It's amazing to stand there. It's amazing to go to the cave where the Buddha practiced austerities. It's amazing. And there were there's a park uh, there where there were a, a, a a number of well-known wanderers. So these weren't followers of the Buddha. These were other people of other sects, and they were hanging out in this park. And they list the names of these well-known wanderers, which don't mean much to me, so we'll just jump over that part. <laughs> but on that occasion, they were having a conversation, and what they were talking about was the, what they were calling the Brahmin Truths. Then the Blessed One approached those wanderers and he sat down on the seat that was prepared and he asked them, you know, what conversation were you engaged in just now? And they said, well, we've been talking about the Brahman truth. So what does that mean? It's like it's the Brahmins, you know, the, the priest class, the, the high guys on the spiritual totem pole. They were talking about what they see as truths, things that they would say that are the truth. So the Buddha didn't even ask him what those were. He probably knew all that stuff anyway. But he said, there are four Brahman truths that I have proclaimed, having realized them for myself with direct knowledge. 
So I should say that this sutta, notice the four, comes from the numerical discourses, the Anguttara Nikaya in the Book of Fours, and it's sutta number 185. And I'm really, really enjoying studying the new translation um, by Venerable Bhikkhu Bodhi of the, of the Anguttara Nikaya. So we're doing that where I live, and um, sometimes I just open it, like, okay, what do I have to learn now? It's amazing sometimes what it has to tell us. <laughs> Not just the Anguttara, I think any, any um, you know, spiritual book, particularly I think the books of the Pali Canon, I find it very enlightening what you can find out that way. So here's the first one he talked about. He said, here wanderers, a Brahmin says thus, all living beings are to be spared. Speaking thus, a Brahmin speaks truth, not falsehood. And he does not on that account, so as a result of speaking this truth, he does not misconceive himself or herself as an ascetic, as a Brahmin. So it's like, it's not like, oh, I, I know the truth and I'm this. He does not, or she does not, misconceive as I am better or I am equal or I am worse. Rather, having directly known the truth in that, he's practicing simply out of sympathy and compassion for living beings. And I think, for me, that points at like what this whole experience can mean to us as practitioners, as those who love deepening our understanding and our skill at being human. Um, there's nothing like a challenge, whether it's a personal one or a social one or a global one. There's nothing like that kind of challenge to, to really fuel our own development if we approach it in a way that makes that possible. And of course, I've known that from my own personal life and I bet you do too. It's like when we see that abyss in front of us and we say, oh, I know what to do with that. I know what to do with this sinking feeling. I know what to do with this deep grief. I know what to do with this cloud of depression. It's time to step back and notice that it leaves a space within which we can create something new. We step back, we make that experience an object to us, and we see the space around it, and we create with that. And that's what we can do in this experience. And I feel like what he's saying here about, I'm not better, I'm not worse, I'm not equal to, I'm not in this. Something else happens. The compassion and the wisdom, the kindness, 
is what is in play. That's what's operating. That's what brings about our decisions about how to spend our time and where to put our attention. And it's powerful and it's rewarding and it's invigorating and it's inspiring and it's a choice. When I decided I would go to the climate change rally in D.C., I felt so much better. Because if I just look at all the data and I keep looking and listening and reading about what's happening and I don't do anything, I feel awful. But if I take action and show up and work together with other people and let that, that deep inner desire to, to really embody compassion and wisdom in action... There's a fulfillment that reaches beyond whatever the results or outcome might be. There's a something that shifts. And so all living beings being spared. There were a number of indigenous leaders, women from tribes, from First Nation peoples who spoke at this rally, and they were so inspiring and so convincing. And one of them said, I'm here because I have an obligation to my children, to my ancestors, to future generations, and our one true mother, If this pipeline goes through, it will be at the cost of human life. When disaster strikes, it's not going to know race, color, or creed. There was someone in this rally who said, I'm doing this for all the future generations of all the species on the planet. Wow, that's pretty powerful. What a space to step into, huh? We have this opportunity like no generation has ever had. And if I had to guess, I would say most of the people in this room are maybe a little over 25. (laughs) Just a wild guess. (laughs) When I went to the, the, the 350.org did this um, road trip where they went around and they, they did um, programs in different towns, and they did one right here at Gunn High School called Do the Math, and they talked about, you know, this building of a movement. And one thing Bill McGibbon said, you know, he said when, when you're young and you're, like, trying to establish your career and you're trying, you know, it could be det- detrimental to get arrested. But as you get older, like, what are they going to do to you? (laughs) We have such a great opportunity. (laughs) 
And as Buddhist practitioners and students of the Dharma, we also have this great opportunity to see what what is it that I can, how can I use this situation to really transform me? Because there's a transformation that takes place to get enlightened, to be enlightened, to let go of it all, to move beyond self-interest, to live bigger than that, to realize that this process doesn't end when I draw the last breath. It's just beginning especially if I've made some progress here and lifted my energy level a bit. So we're in the chapter of fours. There's three more bits here he gave us. And I think they're all really helpful for what we've got available to us in this whole situation. So, again... Number two, a Brahmin says this. All sensual pleasures are impermanent, suffering, and subject to change. Speaking thus, a Brahmin speaks truth, not falsehood. He does not on that account misconceive himself as an ascetic or as a Brahmin. He does not misconceive I am better or I am equal or I am worse. Rather, having directly known the truth in that, I love that part, directly known. None of these things that he's saying are things that you learn because someone told you. You don't, you don't pick it up just because you think it through. It's something that comes through direct knowing. A direct understanding of impermanence that happened to me when my father died. It happened to me when my husband left. We all have these experiences. You get to see that everything in this realm ends. That's okay. That's okay when there's that realization you see wow, I don't have to work so hard to try to hold this together. It's falling apart on its own. (laughs) There really isn't anything I can do about that. Wow. When the realization is there, there's a joy that arises. There's a freedom in it. How do we come to that realization? It's an ongoing inquiry about the nature of the things we hold dear. Is this impermanent or not? Well, I just got to look in the mirror, right? (laughs) Is this going to cause suffering if I cling to it? If it's impermanent, it will. Is this actually who I am? Is this mine? No, I can't own this. I have no control over this body. I have no control even over this memory. Oh, heavens. (laughs) I'm pushing 60, and I can't remember people's names. I can't remember. (laughs) 
did you write to me about, no, I mean, oh, it's embarrassing. I don't even want people to know about it, you know. (laughs) So I'll just tell you all, and then I'm done with it. It's okay. (laughs) It's impermanent. It's out of my control. No matter how many Sudoku puzzles I do, I'm not going to, like, really restore (laughs) all that mental agility I had 30 years ago. It's just not there. So he said, having directly known the truth in that, this person is practicing simply for the disenchantment with such sensual pleasures, for the fading away and cessation. I got to tell you, in the monastic kind of world, the buzz on the street is don't talk to lay people about this stuff because they don't want to hear about renunciation. They don't want to hear about letting go. They don't want to hear about sensual pleasures or not good. They want to hear about how much more exciting life is if you're mindful and you're aware of how good it tastes and how good it feels and how good. And I'm like, give me a break. These people are living human life, for God's sake. <laughs> you're going to experience this, and you do experience, and you have. And we all have. And we've probably all had the experience. Um, I have a friend who's 93. And when, maybe about 15 years ago, when she was letting go of her house and her, like, mountains of possessions, and I said, so, Jane, how does it feel? She looked at me with this bright-eyed energy. She said, it feels good. (laughs) And so, yeah. I think if we're if we reflect on it, we've probably all had situations where we've been holding on to something and wanting it to work so bad and holding on and wanting it to stay the way it is, and then it's so painful as it's falling apart and we let go and the suffering stops right there. And maybe we have to let go without seeing a path forward and it might be scary. But what's so amazing is something always seems to show up in that space. And it is now, too. Number three. Again, a Brahmin says thus, all states of existence are impermanent, suffering and subject to change. Speaking thus, a Brahmin speaks truth, not falsehood. He does not misconceive himself etc., etc. This time, he's practicing simply for disenchantment with states of existence, for their fading away and cessation. The letting go of being this being that I think I am. Number four. This time, a Brahmin says, I am not anywhere the belonging of anyone nor is there anywhere, anything, in any place that is mine. Practicing the path of nothingness. So, there's a lot that we can do And there's a lot that we can practice with. We need to do it together. It's very helpful to have good leadership. I very much recommend visiting online, 350.org, 350bayarea.org. 
There's going to be a, an amazing event, I think, on Saturday, March 23rd in San Francisco, where people will be able to train in nonviolent direct action, preparing for nonviolent direct action, getting ready to go out and participate. There are, oh, sorry. There are a whole bunch of actions and things on the agenda that are going to be happening, including um, checking out Chevron in Rich- Richmond, being able to get a sense of how polluted things really are. Um, there are meetings about uh, in Silicon, there's a Silicon Valley chapter meeting to talk about the, the tar sands and how to take action. There's a sheet. I've got some flyers back there with this whole list, and all this can be done by looking online. On the back, it talks about where I live and what we do there at Karuna Buddhist Vihara. There's also some cards over there. There are some flyers that look like this that talk about Saturday and um, a meeting beyond that. And the groups that are involved, like Idle No More, uh, Native First Peoples groups that have begun to really take up this quest. I hope. Thank you, Sharon. Yeah, there's also a list over there in case you want more information about where I live and what we're up to. And um, I'm starting to envision a an order of bhikkhunis that are kind of like the Sisters of Mercy, which is not what bhikkhunis are usually doing. The bhikkhunis of mercy. <laughs> if you like that idea and you ever want to talk about it, come and t- visit me. <laughs> and um, maybe that will come into existence. Thank you. I hope this- Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.